The story's told of the Pope making an official visit to the UK. He steps out of his private plane, makes his way down to the runway where he finds a limousine waiting for him. He climbs into the back, but as they set off on their journey, he opens the privacy screen separating him from the driver and he says, My son, this is a beautiful car and you're driving it so well, but I wonder could I ask you a favour? It's been years and years since I've been able to drive on my own and I've never had the opportunity to drive anything like this. I wonder could we swap places just for a little while? The driver doesn't know what to do. It's completely against the rules, but it is the Pope and it would be nice to be driven around for a change. So he pulls over at the nearest lay-by. The two men swap places. The driver is just getting himself comfortable in the back when the Bishop of Rome slams the accelerator. The limo launches off. The driver can tell they're getting faster and faster. He wants to call out for the Pope to slow down, but how exactly would you do that? Finally, it's too late. The Pope blasts through a red light. After a few seconds, the driver can see flashing blue lights behind them. The Pope pulls over and waits patiently for the police officer to walk up alongside the driver's door. The Pope winds down the window. The officer leans down and looks in. He sees the Pope and without another word, he turns and walks back to his own car where he radios his sergeant back at the station. Sarge, he says, I've pulled someone over for doing 90 miles an hour through a red light. Well, the sergeant says you know what to do, but Sarge says the officer, it's a limo and I think it belongs to someone important. I don't care who it is, says the sergeant, they broke the law. No, Sarge, you don't get it. It's someone really important. Well, just who are we talking about, comes the reply. Is it a celebrity? Oh, no, Sarge, it's more important than that. A politician then? Is it the Prime Minister? No, Sarge, comes the reply. It's more important than that. Is it a member of the royal family, says the sergeant? Have you pulled over the Queen? No, Sarge, I think it's someone even more important than that. Well, who is it, says the exasperated sergeant. Sarge, I think it's God. He's got the Pope driving for him. We live in a world where we're used to certain people receiving a certain type of treatment. Even in this season through which we're travelling as a human family, it has shown us the stark difference between the treatment of those in positions of privilege and those who don't enjoy that same privilege. It's all very well and good for a group of multi-millionaires self-isolating in their mansions to sing Imagine No Possessions when they don't need to make the choice between staying safe and feeding their child. Recent weeks have seen movie stars being tested for COVID-19 when frontline medical workers have been denied the same tests. Because that's the world we live in. People who are perceived to enjoy a certain class and rank and privilege expect certain treatment and as often as not, they get it. And then we look at Palm Sunday and we see the most remarkable royal procession in history. We see the Lord of creation being greeted by peasant singing. We see the one who has been enthroned with the Father since before the beginning began sitting on borrowed cloaks. We see the king of glory riding on a donkey, a donkey he didn't even own. And yet it's this royal procession rather than any other that inaugurates the kingdom we need. We don't find our salvation, our rescue, our help and our hope in Roman triumphs. 
or military spectacles. We don't find it in the celebration of riches or might. We don't find it in all the places we so often want to and think we should. We find our rescue, our help, our salvation in this surprising king who ushers in a surprising kingdom as he does what we need him to As he answers the prayer we pray, as we sing the same song that crowd did in Jerusalem so long ago, Hosanna, please, Lord, save us. We're in Matthew chapter 21 this morning. We've almost finished our journey through Lent. Today we enter into Holy Week as we prepare for the passion of the Lord, his journey from the garden to the cross to the tomb. I hope you'll be able to join us again on Thursday evening at 7pm. It's Maundy Thursday when we remember and celebrate the Last Supper Christ shared with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. We'll have a short time of worship around the Lord's table as we prepare ourselves for the darkness of Good Friday. Then on Friday itself we'll be joining with our wider Nazarene family around England and Wales. Our district superintendent is going to lead us all around the country in a time of worship as we celebrate the Lord's Supper again. That will be accessible through the British Isles South District Facebook page as well as through the Zoom networking programme that's becoming so famous. If you do need help with how to engage in that service, do please let me know. And then on Sunday, we will erupt together in an explosion of worship as we celebrate an empty cross and an empty tomb and a living reigning saviour. All through this week we'll be encouraging you to journey through the events of that first Holy Week through specific passages of scripture. They're already on our Facebook page. We'll be sending them out on the prayer line and in the description of this video. And in a very real way, that journey to the cross starts today. In the Gospels, it's very clear that this week is the heart of the salvation story. Everything in the narrative slows down and comes into sharp, intense focus. More than at any other time in the life of Christ, we can trace his footsteps through this week as the four evangelists who compose the Gospels want to make sure we don't miss anything. So let's read together the word of God for the people of God Matthew 21 verse 1 as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives Jesus sent two disciples saying to them go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat by her untie them and bring them to me if anyone says anything to you say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away This took place to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd placed their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God who loves to speak, communicate, reveal himself to his people so that they can be drawn into an ever deeper relationship with you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the living, breathing word of God who took up flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we thank you for this written revelation of who you are and what you're like. May your spirit who breathed this word into being speak to his church today. May you breathe life into this sermon, Father, so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, O Lord, help your servants to listen and may we hear from you the words of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the late 70s and 80s, a lady named Pat Murr engaged in an amazing experiment. You should see her picture on your screen. This was her as she was then, age 26. And this is her after she spent around four hours in makeup. Pat would go through this incredible process of becoming an 85-year-old woman every week for around three or four years in order to better understand the struggles and troubles that generation faced in a world that seemed to be moving faster and faster. And no one recognised her. No one looked any deeper. No one expected a 26-year-old woman to look like that and act like that. We can read the Gospels and get so frustrated with the religious leaders. How could they not recognise Jesus? How could they not see him for who he was and who he is? How did they not get it? Because they had been waiting for so long for salvation, for rescue, for Messiah. They'd been waiting for this one who was going to deliver them from their captivity and lead them out of their sins. They had the voice of the prophets and the teaching of the law, all of it pointing to Christ. They were desperate for him to come, desperate for God's salvation to arrive. And yet when he finally came, this perfect salvation, perfect atonement, perfect light and life, when he finally arrived, they rejected him. They crucified him. How did they miss it? How could they have been so blind? They had been crying out in their soul for so long, just like that crowd who greeted Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, Hosanna, which literally means save. And yet when that salvation came, they didn't see it. When that rescue arrived, they didn't recognise him. It's all the more frustrating when we look at those who did recognise him for who he truly was. In just the previous chapter, Jesus is leaving Jericho and two blind beggars hear the crowd and they hear it's Jesus. And without hesitation, their response is to recognise who he truly is and what he has truly come to do. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus, you are the king. You're the one who has come to help and heal, to rescue and restore. You're the one who is able to do what we need. And you're the one who is so full of grace and rich in mercy that you're willing to do what we need. So Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. These two men who were literally blind were able to see what so many others couldn't. They were able to recognise Jesus is the king 
And even when others tried to convince them otherwise, they still recognised he was willing and able to save. And yet so many others didn't see it. So many others wouldn't see it because they were looking for the wrong kind of saviour and the wrong kind of salvation and they were looking for it in all the wrong places. The people of God were once again living in exile, not in Babylon as we saw last week, but right in their own land. This time empire hadn't dragged them from their homes. This time exile had moved in and settled down. Empire had taken up residence and didn't seem to be going anywhere. The Romans dominated Jerusalem with all of their pomp and all of their power, with all of their military might on display. In fact, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem wasn't the only parade that first Palm Sunday. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, Caesar's representative, didn't live in Jerusalem. It was too small and insular and backwards. He lived in beauty and comfort and at a distance by the sea. But every year, as the Jewish people were preparing for the great feast of Passover, he would remind the people of who was in charge. He would gather his troops and display his might, the might of Rome. He would march into the holy city, reminding the people, this is what power looks like. This is what dominion looks like. This is what authority looks like. And for all intents and purposes, this is what a king is. This is what a king does. Pilate came in through the western gate, the front door, surrounded by troops and horses, all the trappings of empire on display. And that's what the religious elite wanted. They wanted God's salvation to burst in through the front door where everyone could see so everyone would take note. They wanted Messiah to come with lightning and fury, bringing salvation at the point of a sword. And the truth is they weren't the only ones. The disciples were caught up in this broken vision as well. We see it later on in the week when Peter takes up a sword to try to defend Christ because he could still only imagine God's salvation looking like that of Caesar. We even see it after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, even after seeing God's ultimate victory over sin and death and hell. Even after seeing how Jesus brought God's rescue through death and resurrection, even then they still didn't get it. They were still looking for salvation in all the wrong places, in all the wrong ways. Acts 1 verse 6, they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, now that you've done all that other stuff, are you going to do what we want? Now that all that's out of the way, are you going to save us the way we want to be saved, the way we think we should be saved? They didn't see it. They didn't get it. They wanted to be saved according to their plans and according to their schedule. They didn't recognise that the salvation God has worked in Christ that remarkable, impossible, unexpected salvation, a salvation that didn't fit the mould they had built and tick the boxes they had drawn, that was what they needed, urgently, desperately, eternally. And all too often we find ourselves in the same place as those religious leaders, the same place as those first disciples. We know exactly the salvation we want. The salvation we need, all God has to do is follow our plan and things will be fine. 
Some of us have seen Bruce Almighty, a local TV personality, breaks down in anger and frustration. He complains, God is unjust. God is unfair. Why do these bad things keep happening to good people? Why doesn't God just save us the way we want him to, the way we tell him to? God intervenes and gives Bruce his power and he thinks, I'm finally going to do this right. He sets up a prayer email account called InstaPrayer. He says, welcome to the Revelation Superhighway. Every single prayer request in the world goes to this inbox, which allows him to process them all logically and fairly. But no matter how fast he goes, they add up innumerable prayers coming in every single second. And so he does the reasonable thing. The thing that in our heart of hearts we so often wish God would do. Bruce sets up an automatic out-of-office reply, yes to all. And so the local hockey team win for the first time ever. 1,100 people win the lottery. They each receive $17. And that's what we think we want. That's what we think we need for God to take that broken situation, that broken heart, that broken relationship and just fix it. Make everything whole again. Make everything right again. Hosanna, Lord, save us and kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. Hosanna, Lord, save us and call your angels to fight off those who come to arrest you. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Step in and deal with this brokenness I'm facing. Step in and take away these burdens I'm carrying. Step in and address it all and handle it all and fix it all because that's the salvation I want, Lord. And if you really love me, that's the salvation you'll give. And when it doesn't come, when we don't get better, or the one we love doesn't get better, when the work dries up or falls through, when the relationship doesn't mend but only grows further and further apart, we're like the religious leaders and we assume God was never in it. We assume God was never present because this isn't the salvation we wanted or expected and so we refuse to accept it at all. In so many ways, so many of us are living through it right now. The vast majority of us never imagined living through a season like this. I recently saw a tweet that said, I'm so sick and tired of living through historical events. One crisis after another, it's exhausting, it's draining. And in so many ways, we are crying out, Lord, save us. Lord, rescue. Lord, help. Hosanna. And we need to be real and we need to be honest. In so many ways, it looks like he's not. It looks like salvation hasn't come and isn't coming. There are people worshipping with us right now and you haven't left your home in days, perhaps even weeks. There are others and you're terrified for all that this means for your livelihood, for your families, for yourself. And there are others who aren't worshipping with us today because they can't worship with us today because they are isolated and separated in ways many of us can't imagine. And like those folks in Jerusalem, we are crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And we feel like he's not listening. Because he isn't doing what we want him to. He isn't rescuing us the way we think he should. He isn't working the salvation. We're telling him to work. 
But just like he did for his first disciples, just like he did for the crowd in Jerusalem, even just like he did for the religious elite who opposed him in every way they could, Jesus wins the salvation we need. He rescues not as we want him to, but as we need him to. He doesn't give us what we want, but lavishly pours out what we desperately and urgently need. We often do scripture a disservice when we read it in little bite-sized chunks. If all that we read of the Bible is the verse printed on our calendar, then we have a problem. Because we miss out on the grand narrative of scripture. We miss out on the fullness of the salvation story God is telling. We even miss out on the immediate context of what is being said and shown. It happens with so much of scripture. And a prime example is Philippians 4.13. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And we read that as if God is a genie who will give us what we want when we want it. We read it as if it means we will never face any challenges because God will give us strength. We read it as if we never pass through those dark valleys the psalmist talks about because we can do everything through Christ and the strength he gives us. Until we read the context in which this verse is placed. Where Paul talks about the challenges of his ministry. Where he talks about how he has lived in plenty and in need. How he has been content when he's fed and content when he's hungry. When he has nothing. And when he feels like he has everything. Paul says I can do it all. I can endure it all. I can suffer it all. I can persevere through it all. Because Christ is resourcing me and equipping me not to soar above the turbulence. But to remain locked and focused upon our bright guiding star through the turbulence. So even when Christ doesn't answer our prayers the way we think he should and tell him to. We can still trust that he has answered and is answering and will answer our prayer. Lord, save us in all the ways we truly need him to. We see it on that first Palm Sunday. The people want him to tear Pilate off the throne and set up a new kingdom for Israel. They want him to march to the governor's palace and start the revolution. That's the salvation they want. That's what they're singing about and praying for. And yet where does Christ go? Not to the palace, but to the temple. Not to the site of Rome's presence, but to the place the people looked to for the presence of God. Because the people didn't need to be free of Rome and rescued from Rome and saved from Rome. They needed to be free to be the people of God. A people living for God and with God who knew him living in them and with them. And so Jesus cleanses the temple of everything that got in the way and everything that kept people trapped in broken systems of field worship. He showed them there is a new way of doing life and a new way to be alive. And it doesn't matter who sits on Caesar's throne because God's people are guided and guarded by the one who sits upon the throne of thrones. St. Thomas of Becket said, we fear no threats because the court from which we come is accustomed to give orders to emperors and kings. 
Caesar in all of the disguises he still wears in the world around us. Empire, in all of its different threats and forms, they can boast and bluster all they want. Our sisters and brothers in the church triumphant in that great cloud of witnesses that have already crossed the finish line, they testify to us and encourage us and assure us that the great cry of our heart and soul, Hosanna, Lord, save us, it has already been answered. It is right now being answered and there is coming a day when it shall be perfectly and completely answered. And so right now, where we find ourselves today, even as we worship in a situation so touched by the brokenness of the world, even as we open our eyes and look around at all the ways we and those we love have been cut so deeply by this shattered world, even as we're tempted to wonder if God really hears us when we cry for salvation, if he really answers our prayer for rescue, if he really is working for our good, then the answer of Holy Week comes with a resounding yes. Because Christ is not like Pilate, living in comfort at a distance. Christ enters into the brokenness of it all and the fallenness of it all. Christ is cut by the sharp edges. Christ suffers from the broken pieces. Christ even cries out from the cross, perhaps the hardest words in all of scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so when we journey through these dark valleys, we don't need to minimise them. And we don't need to make light of them and we don't need to pretend it's all okay. We can rest assured in the fact that Christ journeyed there too. He even journeys with us now. And even if he doesn't rescue and help and save the way we want him to. Even if he doesn't help and heal the way we think he should. Even if we cry out again and again and again, Hosanna, Lord, save us, help us, rescue us. And it feels like he's not answering because he's not following the programme we have set out. Even then and even there, we can know he has rescued in all the ways that matter most. He has saved in all the ways we most desperately need. And there is coming a day when everything broken will be made whole. And everything painful will be healed and everything that oppresses and spoils and hinders will be crushed to death. And more perfectly than any sermon ever could, this blessed sacrament expresses it all. If our younger sisters and brothers have been worshipping elsewhere, this is the time to draw everyone back together because they need to know the same truth we do. That the bread we will soon eat proves that God's people never journey through brokenness on their own. Because in Jesus Christ, God took up flesh and made his dwelling among us. So that even when our rescue doesn't look the way we thought it would and think it should, we can know that we are not alone but that in every single way that matters most, God is with us, God is for us. And so we will not only survive this by God's help and with God's grace, we will thrive through this. Because the one who was willing to give his body to be broken, to draw us to himself, 
will not now leave us when we journey through a broken world. The cup we will soon share proves that the salvation God has won in Christ will not always look the way we think it should. It won't always mean what we want it to mean and accomplish what we want it to accomplish. God's salvation does not mean we are immune from the troubles and trials of life. But it does mean we are held safe and secure in his hand, which will never let us go. Because the cup reminds us every time we drink of it, that our status and standing in the eyes of God is not dependent upon us, but upon him. It's not dependent upon what is happening right here and now and all of the vagaries and uncertainties of life. It is dependent upon the fact that love has already won. Love is winning right now. And there is coming a day when love's perfect victory will flood through every corner of creation. And through it all, we have the assurance that in every way that matters most, God has already answered our heart's cry for rescue and help and salvation. And every time we eat of this bread, every time we drink of this cup, that salvation draws near again. We are fed and nourished in our soul again, ready to face again a broken world that tries so hard to break us. Because even when rescue doesn't look the way we want it to or think it should, even when the troubles and trials of life tempt us to wonder if rescue has even come at all, this meal is a tangible, tasteable expression of the love of God and the grace of God, and the kindness and compassion of Almighty God, the same God who has saved, is saving, and will perfectly and eternally save all who accept the rescue he offers. Lord Almighty, we give you thanks that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that your love is too great and high and expansive even to be contained in heaven itself and so love stepped down. We thank you that your love dwelt among us. Facing what we face and enduring what we endure, we thank you that you can therefore empathise with us, feeling our pain in your heart. We thank you that your rescue doesn't have to look the way we think it should and tell you to do as if you had to follow our plans and structures. We thank you that you are relentlessly at work, regardless of where we are and what we face. We thank you that our troubles and trials are not a sign that God is finished, not a sign that God has left. We thank you that you have worked a perfect salvation, a full salvation, a complete salvation, even when we face dark valleys. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd have mercy on our doubts and fears and anxieties. Forgive us, Lord, when we lose sight of the fact that your way is always best and your will is always good and pleasing and perfect. Forgive us when we forget that wherever we are and whatever we face and however we feel, Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us, Lord, to let go of our ideas of what rescue is and means, what rescue looks like and does. Help us to entrust ourselves to you because you do all things well. 
Help us to accept the fullness of the salvation you offer, letting go of every other voice that promises help but can never be enough. And as we gather around your table now, Lord, this table of grace, would you feed us and equip us for abundant life in a fallen world so that we can go as ambassadors of the rescue of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What we do in these days when the brokenness of the world is very real, this is not how it's meant to be. Whatever the world looks like when this season passes, we cannot begin to think that this will do and that this is good enough. Because there is never and shall never be a substitute for the called out, called together people of God joining around one table. But nevertheless, even though we eat of many loaves in many places, we remain one, not because of geography, but because of the one who invites us to his table. We are one body because one body was broken for all. Lord Jesus, you are the bread of life and those who come to you will never go hungry but will be strengthened and sustained in all the ways we need, even if it's not in all the ways we want. May we feast upon you in our soul and be fed and nourished for eternal life. Just as these loaves were once scattered upon the mountains and then were gathered together to become bread, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. So Lord, unite us in this sign. Amen. In the same way, after supper, Christ took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, those who drink the water you give will never thirst again, however thirsty the land may be as we journey through a fallen world. May we drink deeply and be satisfied. You are the Lamb of God, who through the shedding of your blood takes away the sin of the world, securing the rescue we so deeply need. So Lord, have mercy and grant us peace. The body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken and poured out for you, his grace keep you in everlasting and abundant life. Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on your people, wherever they may be, and on these gifts of bread and cup. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood and empowered by the gift of his Spirit. Amen. And so the table is prepared. All who are hungry and thirsty are invited to feast and receive these gifts of grace that Christ may be fully formed in us. Eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. Whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. Because Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Lord, dying you destroyed our death. Rising you restored our life. Glory to God forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.
Like last week, if there are any of the elements left, I would ask that you not put them in the bin or pour them down the sink. Break up the bread, scatter it on the ground, pour out the cup so that it returns to the earth. And as you do, thank God that he has fed and nourished you and your soul with these elements. Ask that he would now use them to feed this old creation until even it is caught up in his perfect universal rescue. Amen. Grace and peace be with you.